Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. I probably shouldn't play favorites here at Filmmaker Toolkit, but if you're a dedicated reader of IndieWire's craft coverage, you already know that I think Babylon is the great American film of 2022, and that I view the talent of its writer-director Damien Chazelle with a mix of intense admiration and possibly even more intense envy. Babylon is a movie informed by not only the filmmaking of the silent era that it lovingly recreates, but by bold auteurist pop epics like Boogie Nights, Shortcuts, and The Wolf of Wall Street. But as Godard said, it's not where you take it from, it's where you take it to. And what Chazelle has done in Babylon is synthesized his influences into the greatest film ever made about what Hollywood really does to the people who make movies, what it gives them, and what it takes away. I'm very excited to welcome Damien Chazelle to talk about his terrific movie. So thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I guess, uh, you know, before we get into the filmmaking component, I have a writing question, which is, I know you were you know, in one form or another, either formally or informally, researching this movie for years, collecting information about the silent film era. And I'm curious how you start to find a shape for all that, because there are thousands of stories you could tell, you know, thinking about the Kevin Brownlow books and, you know, everything that I'm assuming you probably used as research material for this. So at the point, at what point do you start thinking, I'm, I've, I've got a story to tell about this, and how do you find that dramatic shape? It's, I mean, it's a good question because it was sort of, it was kind of a back and forth process, I would say, where, uh, you know, there'd be kernels in my mind of a dramatic shape I wanted, you know, and then you sort of go into the history and try to see if you can co-opt the history to fit that dramatic shape. And then sometimes the history will let you do that. And sometimes it won't, it'll, you know, push back a bit. And then you maybe alter the dramatic shape to sort of fit things you're finding in the history. And it's sort of went back and forth like that. I mean, it might have been why it took longer than, you know, say, uh, other scripts I've written, uh, I've written at least, it, it, it sort of, um, it had to kind of go through this sort of morphing process, I guess. Um, you know, the, the, like, I remember certain things that were there right from the get-go. Those would probably be based on just very broad strokes, um, things I knew from the era. You know, so like the rough arc of of what wound up being Brad Pitt's character, I'd say was one of the earliest kind of anchors in my mind. Um, uh, you know, the idea of that beyond his character, there would be this kind of ensemble uh, sort of approach to the story, uh, you know, roughly the year range that the story would would uh, would cover. Um, obviously, the silent to sound transition, um, all those things were sort of there at the outset. And then, you know, and then it just wound up uh, being being a, a process, a, a sort of a prolonged process of reading, marinating, trying to write, failing to write, going back, reading, marinating, doing other movies, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, coming back to this. Um, and so that's, you know, all, all the sort of details of it sort of filled themselves in that way. And, and in terms of the reading, yeah, I'd say it was a mix of, a mix of, history, sort of history type research, and then very much like uh, more just, I guess, trying to capture the spirit of, uh, of the time, which I found even more evoked in, you know, for instance, a lot of fiction from the period or just after the period, like that, the, the sort of um, almost as kind of like, you know, the dark side of LA novels that sort of you find in the, kind of the end of the 20s, and especially the 30s, Raymond Chandler stuff, uh, Nathaniel West, um, you know, books like Ask the Dust, things like that, where you just sort of got a feeling of the 
the um, the grittier side of the sort of people on the margins of of uh, high society in Los Angeles trying to get in the desperation of Los Angeles, um, uh, but also the feeling of LA at that time where you could still smell the orange trees, you could still occasionally see sort of dust on the streets, you still, it still had a little bit of that edge of the desert cow town feeling, even though it was rapidly becoming uh, something very different, becoming this sort of uh, major metropolis, but you still felt its roots in, in, uh, in a more rural time. So. Um, yeah, it was sort of a mix of that, and then and then yeah, Kevin Brownlow and and all his you know, especially the interviews he did both both document both filmed interviews and um, and you know compiled in his books. Um, and then again, less historically, but I, I'd have to tip my hat to Kenneth Anger, you know, which is probably obvious to to anyone who's read Hollywood Babylon. There's a lot of that in this. Um, where do you place that? It's somewhere in between history and fiction, I guess. Right? You know. Um, which is a little bit the feeling I wanted this movie to have too. I wanted I wanted everything in it as much as possible to be grounded in some kind of fact, but I would say it's a fact that's been funneled through what oral histories do, like you know, uh, uh, real incidents become amplified as they become told over and over again, and they become urban legends, and rumors take on a life of their own, and suddenly you have this kind of mix of sort of concrete journalism and tabloid and, uh, you know, uh, 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 verifiable fact and uh, embellished sort of self-serving anecdote, and I, I, I kind of find that all part of the stew of early Hollywood um, and uh, part of what's fascinating about it. So. I guess it's a long way of saying that, you know, certainly there were a lot of aspects in the movie that were intentionally embellished and sort of amplified, but the spirit of that was again inspired by, at least for me, by stuff from the period. Well, and I'm curious why you chose to have Irving Thalberg be the one guy, I mean, maybe there were others that I'm just unaware of, but to me, he was the one guy who stood out, who was actually a real person, whereas the other people, you're kind of doing the Dirk Diggler versus John Holmes kind of thing. Totally. You know. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a in some ways sort of a dull reason. I, it, it, it was became this kind of logic thing where I, for a while, I spent a lot of time trying to debate whether I mean I knew the characters mainly would be these fictional sort of composites, but did that mean that the studios they worked for should be fictional or real? You know, and uh, Sing in the Rain, it's it's a you know fictional studio, um, uh, for instance, but. Um, but a lot of those other kinds of uh, treatments of the period, even if they're fictional, use real studios. I, I guess I wanted to kind of have it both ways, uh, for better or worse. So I, I, you know, I, I sort of decided that in order for this to feel like some version of recognizable Hollywood at that time, you had to at least acknowledge, say, a place like MGM. It was such a titan of the time that... Um, to kind of have someone who's supposed to be the biggest movie star on the planet um, be at some fictional studio, it sort of felt like that would just sort of, the whole thing would, at least for me, spiral off too much into the, into the ether. So I liked the idea that um, Jack Conrad, this kind of, you know, John Gilbert slash Fairbanks kind of character that, that Brad Pitt plays would be ensconced within MGM. Um, and it would be MGM for MGM, uh, which therefore meant that you know, it, it just kind of meant that if I'm going to have someone who's playing basically the studio exec role, the kind of head honcho role there, um, you know, and you're doing that period of time, it's just, you know, it's, Thalberg was probably the most 
famous, you know, uh, there's no one more associated with that role of studio exec, you know, in that period than, than Thalberg. So I, it just sort of felt like to acknowledge him as a real figure. Whereas, for instance, Nellie, who I'd sort of, Margot Robbie's character, who I always kind of envisioned as sort of the, um, the you know, sort of wrong side of the tracks kind of star, not just in how she, where she came from, but also in her entire appeal, just made more sense to me that she would be at a more, uh, let's say, lower down the totem pole studio, more of a poverty row kind of studio. So that's where Kinescope, fictional studio, came from. Everyone there is fictional. The way they make movies, you know, when she arrives on set the first day is, you know, they're a little bit behind in terms of the uh, uh, infrastructure of the time, you know, the, 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 of where MGM would be, you know. So you might as well be stepping onto a 1915 set, even though it's 1926. Um, uh, you know, it's still just kind of out in the dirt, many movie shooting at once, um, and, uh, and, and, and everyone there, you know, is, is, uh, is fictional. And so, it, you know, it kind of felt like you could, I could fake the, uh, the, the peripheral, the more peripheral marginal sort of, you know, figures in that Hollywood ecosystem, um, as long as I, um, you know, as long as I anchored them with the reality of a real center of gravity, like an MGM or, someone like William Randolph Hearst or, you know, the Hayes Code or, you know, certain things that um, felt like it would be a little dicier to, you'd see through the, uh, the, uh, the, the fictional surrogate, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just sort of a long-winded answer. The, the real answer is probably that it could have gone either way. And, uh, but this was the convoluted logical thing in my head that led me to, yeah, make Thalberg real and make, for instance, Don Wallach mm -hmm. fictional, mm -hmm. even though, you know, yeah. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the Jack Conrad character, and I feel like you were very lucky to have Brad Pitt playing that guy because, you know, in a way, you know, there's really only maybe three or four people who could play that character and kind of immediately give the audience the sense that this is, like, one of the biggest movie stars. You know, because we don't really have stars like that that much anymore. Basically, if you don't have Brad Pitt or DiCaprio or Tom Cruise, I don't know who you get for this. So, yeah. um but now I'm, I'm curious for you. Those were pro probably literally the only three people right. who, who, who uh, <laughs> so no, I was, who would make sense. I was, uh, yeah, I was very lucky that, uh, and, and it's part of why, I mean, Brad was the first, um, you know, that was the first piece of casting because in some ways, it, yeah, it, it was the most limiting role in terms of who could actually play it and, and do justice to it. And I'm curious, you know, in a case like that, you've obviously, you know, you've worked with movie stars before, but this is a mega movie star that you're working with with Pitt. And I'm curious what your kind of initial conversations were like with him. And is it, is there a difference, whether there be pros or cons to working with a star like that who is, I mean, you know, again, I guess it's a case where you're working with a star who probably has as much or more power than you do on the movie. I mean, I was lucky in, in the sense that because this, I, I don't know, you know, this might not be the, the case with other stars of his, um, of his clout, but that, you know, I, I sort of already knew him to be, uh, I guess what you'd call a filmmaker friendly, uh, you know, uh, actor yeah, and, and someone who ultimately would, would uh, I, I think he just appreciated the, the sort of the big swing of the movie, also appreciated that it was an ensemble, that it wasn't, um, uh, uh, solely a, a, a vehicle um, for him. So I think, you know, that the, maybe I had a, a more sort of blissful experience as a result than, than, um, than other people might have. But, but um, yeah, you didn't really feel that kind of, uh, that sort of tension that I might have been 
that I might have been afraid of. But there is that thing of, you know, just that, I don't know, where it's like, yeah, big movie star. I still find big movie stars intimidating on some fundamental level, you know. And uh, um, I'd say less so when you're actually on the ground shooting. I think, um, you know, there's something about the elements when you get the camera rolling and you're sort of out in the dust and dirt and you're trying to get the shot where it's actually one of the things I sort of love about movie making um, is actually how little, you know, I compare the making of, say, Babylon to some of my first films, such a different scale, and yet the fundamentals feel exactly the same. You know, there's just something that never changes when it just comes to that camera rolling and you trying to get the shot with an actor, whoever that actor is. Um, so, so, you know, it, the intimidation, I'd say, is more early on. You know, it's more when you're, when you're doing your first meetings and your first kind of sussing out whether this relationship is going to work. Um, and, uh, but, you know, then, then it, assuming you get a sense that it will work, um, it, you know, it kind of, uh, it takes its own, takes its own course. And, and how do you create an environment on the set that's going to facilitate the best work from the actors when you've got a cast like this where the levels of experience are so vastly different? I mean, again, you've got someone like Pitt, who's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Then you've got Diego Calva, who, you know, I've never seen in anything before. Um, so is that, I guess, uh, do you feel like having those different levels of experience, does that require any kind of special balancing act on your part do you feel like it's helpful in a way do they give each other things they probably do it was definitely one of the things i was the most worried about i think with this movie was that was that sort of uh that kind of mix uh um i guess for me it just wound up manifesting itself mainly in sort of the difference in how i worked with any individual actor in in prep really you know so it's like with brad for instance i remember most of what we did in prep was you know, just conversations. It was talking through, wasn't really reading scenes, it was talking through them or talking through various strokes of the character. Um, um, you know, whereas Diego, I basically made a version of the movie with Diego in my backyard before we, you know, months before we ever got on set. I just used my iPhone and my wife played all the other roles and we did every single scene. Um, uh, and we would do many takes of them till I felt it was good and I'd edit it together and then we would do more takes based on how I felt the edit resulted. So it was kind of this like microcosm of making the movie. Um, so, you know, that was a much more kind of all hands on deck, sort of really building the character together kind of process. Um, whereas with, you know, with Brad, for instance, I don't know, with certain actors, I would be worried that if you did that with them, you would lose, you'd kind of, uh, you'd suck the life out of whatever um, sort of, uh, whatever, you know, accidents might happen or things like that. So I think, you know, in some ways, because Diego was so new to the process, I knew that, or I felt confident enough that the newness for him was never gonna be extinguished. That, you know, no matter how many times I rehearsed a scene with him, once he got on set, with Brad Pitt there, and it's it's his first time ever on an American film set, first time ever on a, a somewhat large film set, first time ever with movie stars. You know, just that that uh, there would be enough new about that experience for him, no matter how many times he'd rehearsed it, that um, uh, that something real and genuine would come out, and that actually our job, his and mine, as director and, and actor, was to make him feel so thoroughly prepared that he had the confidence to let loose on set and just, you know, that, that he wouldn't choke when the lights turned on. He would just have the confidence to actually just be and not really act, just be on set. So, 
So that at least was the thinking, uh, rightly or wrongly. So lots of, you know, uh, sort of rehearsal, improvisation, sort of uh, discussions, you know, running scenes over and over again, both with him alone uh, or, or, you know, him and my wife, but also some of the scenes with him and Margot as well, um, you know, to try to kind of make sure that that chemistry, which, which was so important to the movie, would be there. Um, uh, you know, whereas again, him and Brad, I sort of liked the idea that some of the first times they ever spent together would be some of the first times that Manny, the character, ever spent in the presence of a movie star. So, um, yeah, there's certain kind of things like that where life is going to reflect art or art is going to reflect life that you want to try to preserve. Um, and then and then outside of that, I guess I am a believer in preparing as much as possible. But it's always that balance, I think. I, I, I've gone back and forth my whole life and like rehearsal, no rehearsal. Some directors swear by it. Some directors swear against it. I see both sides. I really do. Uh, and I guess all I've learned at this point, all I can say with any certainty at this point is that it does depend on the actor. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little bit the trick with this movie. Very different kinds of actors. So I just felt they each demanded a slightly different way of working. Well, in terms of preparation and planning, I'm curious about how you plan your shots. Like, for example, I, you know, there's a classic sequence in this movie. The scene, the first scene where they're shooting a sound movie is just hilarious. And it's so beautifully constructed on every level. I mean, I've seen the movie four times now. And like every time I watch it, I kind of watch that scene from a different perspective. Like, look at what the production design is doing for the scene, what the sound design is doing for the scene. And how it all like just comes together so beautifully um, to create that just insane mounting tension for all those characters and uh and i'm curious for something like that how much how much are you planning you know are you storyboarding that are you shot listing it how much of it is kind of how much of the timing of all that is kind of figuring out figured out in the editing room is is it kind of a combination yeah i guess a combination i mean most everything in this movie and this isn't what i've done on every movie but in this movie most everything was storyboarded um pretty precisely um and then the making of that scene almost sort of reflected a little bit the the structure of the scene itself. Not, not, not so much in the way that that sounds, but just in the sense that kind of it got a little freer as it went, you know? So, um, so I remember more so than even other scenes on this movie, we had, you know, these kind of boards, you know, I had my storyboards just sort of blown up there on set and we would just be, you know, getting every single angle checking them off, you know, so there was a very mathematical way of approaching the scene. We had three days, we knew we needed to get X number of setups per day, and you know, you just kind of, uh, you do it in this very kind of clockwork type way, and yet there's a certain point when you're doing, you know, let's say you're doing the sort of um, the hero close-up or, or sort of, you know, hero medium shot of an actor that you know you're going to return to again and again. At a certain point, you lock the camera off and you, and the actor just, the, the, the the reality starts to take over, you know, like the PJ who plays the AD, his voice just starts to crack because he's been screaming so much and stuff you don't expect happens out of that, you know, and, and uh, same with Margo, you know, at some point Margo, Margo would be very, you know, it'd be very kind of in some ways regimented for the first half of the scene, but once she starts really losing it, every, you know, every time something that, that we sort of did that part of the scene, something different would happen, you know, where she would kind of instinctively, I don't know, grab like a, there's a tennis racket, uh, deep in sort of the set of the college dorm room that at some point she grabbed and started swinging at the mic with. I, I don't think that wound up in the movie, but, you know, that wound up being something that we then, uh, you know, sort of played with. I remember another set, she she punched a hole in the 
in the wall of the set, which was, again, not something I'd planned for, but just wound up happening. Um, I think her punching the, uh, actually, that's right, her also punching, there's a moment in the, that is in the movie where she punches the sound technician, um, and that wasn't planned necessarily. That was just, you know, but you, so you, so you kind of get into a certain rhythm with that scene once all, once the shit has hit the fan, where you know that any kind of attempt to plan it is either going to be, uh, uh, you know, foolhardy or, or it's actively going to limit what the scene can be. So um, so it was a little bit of a mix, I guess, of, of, uh, of sort of sticking to the planning, but making sure that you, that you allow some freedom for unplanned things to happen, which I guess in some ways is sort of a kind of a rule, was a rule of thumb for the whole movie, more or less. Um, and yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's um, but I would say certainly the, the, the kind of the building blocks of that scene and sort of returning to all those, you know, kind of close-ups that we keep repeating and things like that, the various details of the light and the door and the uh, suitcase falling down and all that kind of stuff, that whole rhythm had been figured out uh, in the, you know, in the storyboards. And then, and then once I was in the edit with Tom, um, I mean, Tom's amazing with rhythm and, uh it's one of the things I love working with him, uh, one of the reasons I love working with him so much. And, you know, so it was kind of, it became really this sort of micro calibration of trying to figure out how fast was too fast, how slow was too slow, um, how repetitive was too repetitive, you know, trying to kind of get that, that sort of rhythm where you feel like the scene itself is a, is a locomotive that's kind of picking up steam and then slowly discombobulating until it completely, you know, goes haywire. I mean, how do, how do you think your background as a musician informs your approach to something like that, or even just to filmmaking in general? I mean, your movie's rhythm is so important. And like this movie, it's three hours plus, but it moves like a freight train. I mean, there's just no, um, you know, I never felt the length. I never felt like, I, I felt like it was very perfectly timed for what it was supposed to be. And do you think your, your background as a musician informs your approach as a filmmaker and and the way you work with your composer. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, I mean, certainly consciously it does in the sense that we, you know, I, I start, I usually start working with him, with, with, with Justin, sort of very early on, like as soon as there's a draft of the script, before, way before we've begun kind of what you'd call sort of real prep. Um, so that by the time I'm storyboarding, I have a lot of the music. I can be cutting some of the storyboards to the music, um, making sort of little makeshift homemade animatics sort of, um, you know, and, uh, and we could be playing music on set, you know, so all, all that stuff is very kind of deliberate in terms of sort of our workflow. Um, but yeah, probably subconsciously, I don't know, it, it might be a reason why editing is maybe my favorite part of the whole process. It's, it's um, you know, or, or maybe, yeah, maybe part of why I do think about, um, I, I wind up approaching a lot of these sort of things in terms of, uh, sort of in terms of pace or timing or, or tempo, meter, whatever, whatever you would call it, um, you know, trying to time out, for instance, if we're doing, if we're doing a sort of one or where I know I'm not going to have that much leeway to uh, find the rhythm and post, um, really timing it out pretty, you know, trying to time it out pretty specifically. I mean, again, you don't want to be a slave to the, to the, um, to, to some arbitrary number of seconds in your head, but, but trying to gauge a kind of window beyond which, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to fall. Um, but I don't know. May, I mean, maybe maybe all directors work that way. But it, yeah, it it certainly is kind of front and center for me. Yeah. 
Well, when you talk about the oneers, that makes me think of something you were saying about uh, Diego and Brad Pitt and how, you know, with Pitt, you don't want to lose his spontaneity. So, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking about how some actors, you know, they're great on the first or second take and then they kind of go down. Some have to build up. Um, some are in between. And, and I'm curious how that affects, if you're doing one of these oneers, um, what are some of the challenges of that in terms of negotiating all those different kind of needs of the actors or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find any oneer that has any sort of um, complexity to it is, is, is always going to take at least upwards of 10 takes before it starts to feel like something halfway usable. Um, you know, uh, we'd sort of find the pattern was like, I remember we found this on La La Land, you know, it's sort of like somewhere around take, I forget what it was, 13, 12, 13, 14, something like that was where you'd maybe get your first good take. Um, and, uh, and then you want to keep going and get a better one. Um, you know, but so I don't know, it's kind of, in a way, I guess that sort of removes the choice uh, for you in terms of sort of how you want to, um, you know, where you want to try to uh, have the actor peak or, or, or not peak. I, th- I think in some ways what's good is that the actors, um, um, at least in my experience, they sort of, they, they get it and they kind of, uh, I don't know, there's almost a way in which we're all still getting our footing um, in those first few takes. I mean, I, 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 I've rarely experienced something where some kind of marvelous piece of performance uh, was sort of wasted on take three or take four when the rest of the shot wasn't there yet, and, and, and then you can never regain that. I, it's, it's um, I don't really know why. I mean, it, 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 it might just be that, um, yeah, it might just be that there's some kind of instinctive subconscious rhythm that just sets in for everyone where you just kind of know at the outset, um, before you even roll the camera, you know that this is going to be the kind of shot that we're going to warm our way into. And so everyone sort of, without even being instructed, sort of knows that um, that those first few takes are to, to find things, try things out. Um, but the real, you know, the hoped for magic, if it's ever that, is not going to happen until, uh, until you're in the double digits. Um, Usually, so um, yeah, it's it's um, and of course, you know, I, I guess it's something also where you, you, it's another area where you maybe find a difference sometimes between um, more experienced actors and less experienced actors. I mean, I do remember one thing with Diego that was interesting was, uh, and I always knew this was a risk, but and and, and occasionally it's it's going to happen where, you know, there would be some kind of moment of magic, for instance, that I had captured on my cell phone back in the backyard, you know, a year prior, um, that just kind of got stuck in my head as like the lightning in a bottle that I wanted in the real thing. Um, and I would try various kind of maneuvers for how to, because you never want to just say, you know, just replicate that, you know, uh, though sometimes you kind of have to, <laughs> but you, you, you want to try to find some way to kind of naturally work your way towards, uh, towards that. But it's always, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's never a place where you really want to be sort of trying to kind of replicate something that happens spontaneously and naturally and organically. That's, that's exactly the kind of situation that most directors who oppose rehearsal will use as kind of exhibit A for why, why you want to save it all for, 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 uh, for on set. But, I still think, again, depending on the actor, 
the cost outweighs, or sorry, the benefit outweighs the cost, or, or at least did in this situation, such that, yes, of course, there were those handful of things where um, there are tiny little moments in those rehearsal tapes that, uh, that I will feel were never uh, recaptured, but there's something else. There's something else that sometimes when you're shooting, you don't even realize is happening that, um, that sort of uh, uh, comes in to supplant those those absences and and nine times out of ten uh, create something richer than um, than you had even hoped for. So, you know, uh, yeah. I, I, but but sometimes you do feel a little bit like you're zigzagging, like you're sort of taking a step backward for every few steps forward, and you have to kind of. It's a little bit the trick of 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 shooting and crafting the performance with the actors. You, you have to sort of, you know, be mindful of that, be aware of that, but never let that sort of defeat you well in a movie like this you know that that whole first i guess it's about a half hour that first party sequence which is just so loaded up with detail and with so many characters and so many extras and i wanted to ask a little bit about how you work with your ad in terms of directing the extras because you know i went to see a movie recently that's playing it'll remain nameless but the extras in it were all horrible and it distract it threw me out of the movie immediately that just how distractingly bad the extras were and in your movie uh, I felt like again every viewing I watch, I'm kind of looking around the corners and like look just, and and the extras are incredible. And in this case, you know they're doing some crazy stuff. I mean, you've got graphic sexual content, and you've got just and just just, and some of them are playing weird instruments. They're just like and there's you know or they're doing God knows what. You know they're it, it's 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 just insane. And I'm I'm wondering how you and your AD work together to kind of uh, just make sure all of those details are right and make sure that all those extras are uh, where you want to be and authentic. Yeah, it's, I did feel like sometimes, you know, maybe back when I was starting to make movies or before I started making them, you know, that, 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 that there was a way in which that's sort of how you could, you could really judge a director maybe (laughs) was, uh, it's not so much whether, you know, Lawrence Olivier or Daniel Day-Lewis gives a great performance because that's sort of, they're probably always going to do that, but what's going on behind them. Um, but I, w- I really have to say in the, I guess especially in something of this scale, um, the, all the credit really has to go to, uh, I mean, you mentioned it yourself, to, to the AD, and I would say just the entire AD department. Bob Wagner was the first AD on this. Um, and, uh, but we also had just a tremendous set of, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, even PAs who 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 uh, who I think were sort of the unsung heroes uh, on this film set, you know, where it was a lot of divide and conquer, you know. So I'd have a kind of broad stroke for broad strokes for what what I wanted from some part of the crowd, um, and uh, and I would have spent a lot of time also casting those extras. We had uh, Sandy Alessi, who's great uh, uh, casting director, background casting director. Uh, handled all of that. Um, and we'd been really particular about sort of, more so than I've been in the past, about how to really sort of, um, uh, I guess, yeah, compose these crowds. Um, and, uh, but then once on set, you know, sort of, so Bob kind of becomes the sort of, uh, uh, you know, he takes the baton from me or sort of the spirit of whatever I'm craving from them um, and has to go execute that. And he's doing that, but he's also sort of dividing the labor, you know, the, the, this part portion of the crowd will go to, you know, the second second AD, and this portion of the crowd will go to, you know, the, the PA here, and, and so it becomes kind of a, uh, it does become, I know it's, it's like a cliche to say this, but it's true teamwork in, in, the, in, the, uh, in every sense of the word, um, 
we also had a little bit of a mix of, you know, uh, hopefully not so much that you could kind of, that the audience would be able to sense it, but, you know, in every crowd, there'd be a few people, you know, kind of peppered here and there strategically who would be, for instance, a professional dancer that my choreographer, Mandy Moore, would work with, or a, um, a stunt person that um, Doug and Whitney Coleman, our, our stunt coordinators, would work with. And so they would all have very specifically directed, you know, targeted moments or things or actions that they knew how to do and how to repeat over and over again, depending on where the camera was. And then they'd be surrounded by uh, the more generalized background performers who, you know, uh, would, uh, would kind of sort of react to or against those sort of strategically placed moments. Um, so it was always this kind of mix where, where, uh, where the, the, the hope, the intention was to not have a, you know, to, to kind of have the, the frame always feel alive and always feel like, uh, also somehow try to convey the idea that there were more people than we actually had, you know, it's on every movie, but certainly on this movie, it was always fighting that sort of felt like a, uh, felt like kind of pushing the boulder up the hill of fighting against the number of extras we could actually afford versus the number of extras that you sort of, you know, my, my, uh, uh, idealized vision in my head would you know, would have um, you know back in the silent era if you're doing say a battlefield scene they'd have you know they could have 5,000 uh, extras uh, you can't really do that uh, today at least you know unless you're unless you've got a billion dollar budget or something so so um, so trying to kind of frame the camera in such a way that you ideally always felt like there was uh, spillage and like there was uh, you know, very intense activity going on just left and just right of the frame. When in reality, you know, if you were kind of behind the scenes, you'd usually probably see, if we were doing our job right, that every single body we had, every single moment of activity we had was right there in front of the screen. We were trying to keep every penny from not being, not being wasted. But you try to fake that it's all happening 360 and the camera just happens to be almost like a documentary observer peering and glimpsing at these things at random. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, it's it's yeah it's you know I guess on, on that front that's where Linus and his camera team, uh, Lena Sangren, the DP, and and the entire camera team, um, they they come into play and become you know almost an equal partner with the ads and the choreographers and the stunt coordinators in sort of constructing that feeling of a moving fresco that you're that you're experiencing in real time. Well, they did a great job of giving that impression that you had more extras than you did because that was my one of my first reactions to the movie. I remember coming home after I saw it the first time and. My wife was asking me about it, and I said, I have no idea how the hell they did this without spending a billion dollars, because it really did seem, <laughs> oh, it felt like Spartacus or something, you know? Um, it, was, it, was, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, I want to ask, I'm going to actually say here for people listening, if you, if you there's, I'll give a spoiler alert, uh, if you haven't seen Babylon yet, maybe this is the time to stop and come back, because I want to ask you about the kind of not climatic, the kind of climactic montage, I guess, that you have in there when Diego goes to the movie theater, uh, which were, which I love. I love that the movie all of a sudden just, you kind of go full on like Godard or something. Um, I, like that, that was, I think the point where, you know, I was loving the movie up until that. And that was the point where I was like, okay, this is one of my favorite movies now. I just was totally blown away by the audacity of it. And also just the, it really, I found it really deeply moving. And I'm curious how that a how that came to you as an idea and was it something that the studio and your collaborators did they get what you were going for there or was it something where you had to convince people did they look at you like you were insane <laughs> well uh the irony is I, I i i would say 
if it weren't for the producers on this movie, I'm not sure that that sequence ever would have um, wound up uh, like that. I, the, 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 the short story is that um, initially what we had in the sort of first cuts of the film was a much um, you know, simpler, I'd say more, uh, yeah, more kind of classically shot, literal um, sequence that was just the sort of real time part of that of, of, of um, Diego uh, watching Sing in the Rain and, and, and sort of grappling with uh, the memories that it inspires. And, and um, it kind of ended with that. And there was just something, I think all of us, myself, the producers, we all felt there was something missing, but uh, didn't really know exactly what it was. Um, and it was uh, uh, Matt Pluff, um, who is uh, one of the producers who I, I had initially, he and I kind of came up together in the business and I'd initially pitched him the idea for Babylon, the very bare bones idea of Babylon, uh, like 15 years ago when he was just starting as, a, as an exec at the time. Um, he, I, I think I remember, you know, he, he called me up and, and sort of didn't have an exact recipe, but just encouraged me to sort of go a little crazy. Just try, just, just, just try, try stuff that, um, I remember his, his sort of point that became kind of revelatory to me was that the thing that wasn't working with the ending was that, simply put, it didn't fit the rest of the film. Um, that ironically, the film is so, um, again, for better or worse, sort of crazed in, 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 its, uh, in its energy and its, you know, uh, uh, in its approach that, that only an ending that, you know, uh, uh, sort of um, felt like, again, it went sort of all the way, you know, only an ending that risked going too far <laughs> would, be, would, be, uh, would be appropriate. And actually the ending that we currently had was, was just too normal. I guess for, for, for lack of a better word. Um, anyway, that kind of sparked something in me. Um, and uh, I, I just kind of went back, looked at it. I also looked back at the script um, because the ending we had initially was basically what was in the script, except I realized that it wasn't really because in the script I did what, you know, you can do as a writer of prose. I sort of described a lot <laughs> and I kind of gave you more of a window into Manny's head and I used a lot of purple prose and highfalutin adjectives and all this kind of stuff that um, just filming the physicality of what's actually happening uh, w didn't do a good, good enough job of conveying. So, uh, you know, it, it, it actually in some ways became kind of the compass for me of, of let's, let's try to sort of go outside the bounds of what we've sort of set up for this scene, do a kind of radical re-edit of it, break it apart, um, uh, you know, go too far, uh, but as a way of actually getting more completely and truthfully what's on the page. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's sort of, that's basically uh, what Tom and I wound up doing. And we had, we had some kind of pieces of, of Justin music that um, that hadn't been used uh, uh, or had been used elsewhere in the film that I sort of was able to cut to um, and um, and then and then once I had some version of that sort of gave it back to Justin and he sort of recomposed uh, new stuff to go on top of that and um, you know it sort of took shape that way but, but but I would say that that sort of initial first pass at cutting was very quick and instinctive and and uh, you know, messy and and uh, I think the big the big 
sort of mandate that I felt in my head and Tom in his was just to actually not overthink it, was to, you know, we had some idea of the parameters of what we wanted to, where we wanted to land, but beyond that, we had to just kind of um, cut it in a little bit of a mad rush and then sort of see, see where the chips fell. Um, and some of it worked, some of it didn't, but what worked basically stayed that way, uh, or at least what I felt worked, uh, uh, you know, basically stayed that way um, till, you know, until we locked picture. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you almost have to do something like that in a mad rush because otherwise the possibilities are so limitless. If you start overthinking it, you could spend six months of your life on the three-minute sequence. Yeah, almost. yeah, and, and the logic can become your enemy as well. It's the, 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 there is a way in which it, it needed to, again, I guess to to, to to go back to what Matt Plough first told, you know, first suggested to me, which was so true. It, it needed to fit the rest of the movie. It needed to. Um, to have a little bit more um, outlandishness, <laughs> so um, and so, yeah, it's it's interesting. Then, I mean, I guess in some ways, once we did that and then started showing it to other people, I mean, it was sort of, I guess, in some ways, felt reflective of what what it's um, what it's sort of what the, what the reception of the ending seems to have been in the in the larger world was very all over the map, you know, very uh, very polarizing and. Um, um, Matt and I joked, the producers and I all joked that I think the only way we actually um, were able to sort of, you know, like, like got away with, you know, a major studio um, allowing an ending like that was actually in retrospect because our initial ending was so unsatisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> that we we had, we had basically and we were ready to finish the movie we were you know by the time i went back to the ending we were mixing already so we were kind of you know uh, the, the train was on the tracks um but it was the type of thing where you know when, when i told the studio you know what i'm gonna actually go back and I, i'd like to pause everything for a bit because i want to go back and mess with the ending a bit it, it was it was music to their ears i don't know if what came back was was what they had in mind but but um but certainly they were very supportive of doing something different. So I think that's the recipe if you want to sort of throw in some really weirdly, you know, avant-garde kind of, you know, go to our brackage sort of ending <laughs> to, a, to a big studio picture is to, um, is to begin with something that the, you know, that the studio just really, really hates and then, <laughs> and then make them think that that's what you're committed to and they have to sort of get used to that. And then you give them this last minute, like 11th hour, like, you know, stay of execution where you're like, you know what, I'm going to try something different. And their joy at that difference will override their horror at the, uh, the, uh, at what you've wrought. <laughs> That would be my, my recipe. Well, it's you know it's funny talking about how polarizing the ending is and everything. And I mean, I, to me, one of the exciting things about this movie is how passionate people get, pro and con, about it. I mean, I, th I feel like yeah, yeah. most of the film lovers who see this movie, you know, have this kind of evangelical fervor, either for or against it. You know, in my case, it's like for. Um, you know, some people it's against, and and you know, for you, I mean, to me, that's like in in a way the best kind of reaction to get. I mean, it's it's better. You know, it's certainly better than. People being like, yeah, it's pretty good. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I experienced the, the yeah, it's pretty good on on First Man, um, and and uh, again, Babylon predated that in terms of like the writing of it and everything. So it's not, it's not like uh, none of this stuff is um, conscious, but so much when you're sort of making the movie, um, um, and on some level, of course, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, that you sort of, of course, in your ideal world, you sort of want. Um, you want everyone to like everything, but 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 there's a there's a way in which um, 
it is sort of, um, it was a little bit maybe, yeah, what sort of felt exciting about just going back to the ending, for instance, cutting the ending was, was uh, and getting rid of the old ending. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was that I knew, it felt again true to the spirit of the movie, which was that I knew that we might go, you know, really be going down in flames <laughs> uh, uh, with the approach, but um, that was sort of in some ways the point that it was, you know, it, that, that, that either way it was going to be, um, it was going to be big and loud and, 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 and make an impression. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that where I think maybe you do have to be willing to kind of go a little kamikaze in order to, uh, in order to, yeah, in order to sort of touch at that in, in, in some way. Well, I guess to finish, I, I've kind of a larger philosophical question because, you know, this movie got me thinking a lot about the different, you know, the transitional stage we're in now in the movie business. And obviously, you know, you're, you're presenting the biggest transition we ever went through from silent to sound. And then there's, you know, there've been all of these other transitions where people talk about, you know, the movies not surviving, whether it's television or, you know, home video. And now, now I feel like everybody, nobody really knows what's going on with streaming. And I, and I think another exciting thing about your movie is I do feel like we get a lot fewer of these now, these kind of uh, entertaining auteur movies with scale. You know, I do feel like there's a shortage of those compared to, say, you know, the late 90s. or Yeah, something like that. And I guess I'm curious for you, you know, I, I heard an interview with you where you seemed like you're fairly optimistic. Like you think this phase we're in now is going to be like all the other times when people declared movies dead and they weren't. And, but I'm, I'm curious how you kind of see, uh, you know, I know this is sort of an unfair question to ask, you know, you're a director, not a prognosticator, but how, you know, how do you see us kind of getting past this, the kind of contraction that seems to be going on right now? I mean, yeah. Um, I think contraction is a great word um, because I, I, th I think that's exactly what's going on now, and it, it, you know, it, 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 I feel like it'll um, it'll sort of you know work its way um, through through everything, you know, and, and uh, but I guess I yeah I guess I just have to believe that 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 you know it's sort of every contraction comes after an expansion and before another expansion and then it'll contract again and I don't know like on some level I think you know for instance there's a lot of fretting about uh you know movie theaters closing these days you sort of feel like you see more movie theaters closing than you do uh opening but but then you sort of go back in time I and mean, yes it's true but I don't like seeing movie theaters close either um it always bumps me out uh, and Vice versa, I love when I see a, a new movie theater open, uh, which which does also occasionally happen even today. Um, but you know, if you talk about say twenty years ago, you know, you're also talking about uh, or a little over twenty years ago, you talk about the '90s, you know, sort of th 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 that sort of massive, I guess you could argue from a historical perspective, overexpansion of uh, you know movie theaters, the the multiplex um, revolution that you could make an argument maybe um, uh, took away some of the specialness and sort of value in a sense of of uh of a movie theater and what what that could be certainly it was a very different approach to movie going uh than what existed in the silent era let's say you know um uh certainly there there were a lot fewer theaters um but um you know uh, but but each one was a little more um you know felt like a little more of an event so so 
I guess it's just a way of saying that I think these things are kind of um, they're cyclical. There's there's corrections that sort of happen, overcorrections, uh, you know, uh, followed by uh, um, renewed corrections on top of that. And so it, 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 I, I do, I guess, remain something of an optimist that that um, what might seem like the sky is falling is is really just is really just one of those things, and is not fundamentally different than um, the spate of skies falling, uh, uh, you know, predictions that, you know, for instance, I mean, it's sort of, to me, I guess my little kind of private Easter egg irony for me in the, in the ending of, of this movie that, um, that I didn't want to underline too much, but, you know, we skip ahead to 1952. When I think of 1952, yeah, I think of Singing in the Rain, but I also think what's the context of something like Singing in the Rain being made? It's all these same kind of prognostications of the skies falling, and cinema is dead, and, and movie theaters are over, and uh, studio system is is over, and 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 I guess the thing you have to acknowledge is that in some ways these, there's always some truth to these prognostications. So, for instance, you know, if you look at the 50s, yeah, in some ways they were correct to say that the studio system of some kind was over. Uh, you know, the, the divestment stuff in 48 and, and then the various other changes with television and whatnot. Yeah, it, it, certainly it killed some version of the studio system. Um, but did it kill cinema? No, I mean, if anything, it, it had to happen in order, in order for the late 60s and 70s in Hollywood to happen. You know, uh, cinema had to die to be reborn in, in that sense, if it ever died. You know, so it's that, it's, it's that kind of thing where, you know, of course, silent cinema did truly end. People saying that, oh my God, our way of life is ending in the 20s, there was truth to that. There, it's not like they were making up this massive sea change. It was a sea change, and we definitely lost something. I regret that you know, there's there's no more passionate Joan of Arcs being made, um, or sunrises or whatnot. I, I do think that's a, that's a loss. But cinema, as a larger entity, of course, survived, transcended, you know, adapted, moved on. So that's, I guess, where I I come down on it. That um, that it's a cycle of death, rebirth, death, rebirth, and and none of it's permanent and you know we're always in some state of transition and makes it uncomfortable at times but we you know just we have to do our job of keeping up with it i guess well i think that's a great note to end on and uh it's a great movie it's been a great discussion and i really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with me thank you so much thanks for having me